Welcome to this magazine debrief. This week I am joined as usual by Gronya Hallahan. Hello. And Dan Worth. Hello. And we are looking at the 18th of September issue of Tez, which has a cover feature by an excellent educational journalist called John Morgan. Um, it was about a month ago, so not too far after the exams chaos, we asked John to take a look at how over the last six months things got quite so chaotic, quite so confusing and quite so out of hand. And a narrative emerged that essentially the actions of several players, but fundamentally government in, in the last six months has led to a huge erosion of trust between all parts of the education network, if you like it, the web. So, you know, government lack trust in teachers, government lack trust in the unions, the unions lost trust in government, parents and uh, schools begin began to lose trust in each other as media reports of teachers refusing to go back to work, which were very inaccurate, um, uh, came to fruition in, in, in the mainstream press. So John basically details the story of the past six months and then looks at how we can begin to rebuild trust in the education system. How can we begin to trust the government? How can the government begin to trust schools? How can the exam system be, get more trust back? Um, and I think it's it put down in, what is it, nearly 4,000 words. It, it's a hell of a, a read, isn't it, guys? I mean, I don't know what your first impressions were, but mine were that it was it was so chaotic and so um, the, the trust system seemed to have broken down to such a degree that it's, it's quite a shocking read, actually. I don't know what you think, Gronia. It's, it's funny when, you saw, when you're in the middle of it, you can't quite see the timeline of where, where everything's happened. And then when you take a step back and read it, like in that piece, you can really appreciate just the point where we started from, which was, you know, we're going to have these centre assessed grades, and they're going to moderate them. And this is, this is a decent plan. I think we were all quite shocked when the exams were originally cancelled. I was quite certain they were going to be sat in some form or other. And then it just went from bad to worse to ridiculous. And it's, um, it's quite a task we've got to get ahead of us. I don't know if we will have a decent system for 2021. And um, Dan, when we were, I mean, you were quite new to the, uh, to the features desk when, when COVID-19 struck and, and when schools began to lock down. And that period was chaotic enough as a journalist covering it. But mm. for, for schools, I mean, John really spells out quite how last minute some of the guidance was and how schools were, you know, it was already a high pressure situation that was made worse. Yeah, I mean, I think every teacher will know the guidance regularly being updated and released on sort of Friday nights. I think particularly for like one before the August bank holiday weekend. I mean, it almost seems sort of perverse, doesn't it, that you would do that? Why? why? How does that come to be? I mean, there's deadlines and last minutes, but that's just not, it's just not the way you, you do something, is it? It's just not right. You should have even better to hold it back until the Tuesday just for everyone's sort of well-being or, or, or get out two days earlier and something. But to end up doing it like that, it just seems crazy. And I think by that point, the sort of goodwill or the sense that, oh, this is a difficult thing and we're all grappling with something new, it wasn't really an excuse anymore, whereas it may have been in March and April. And I think that's why, like, you know, that, that by then, the, the level of sort of goodwill and sort of, okay, we're all in this together has sort of naturally faded. And after the exam debacle, and then, you know, then there was the exam debacle, and then this constant guidance. I mean, yeah, really difficult. And it, it is a problem. I think it's easy to sort of just pass it as, oh, you know, government's useless or oh, teachers you know just need to get on with it but it's, it's more fundamental than that isn't it it's, it's, a, it's a countrywide profession being sort of put through something that, that should really have been avoided 
And that John makes a, a good case for the fact that by the time the exams rolled, rolled round, that, you know, the education as a system had nothing left. You know, they, they'd taken all the punches and, you know, they were hanging off the ropes at that point and then they had to deal with this. And um, I think there isn't a person in the country that didn't see uh, Gronje on, on television in that two-week period. I think, how many interviews did you do, Gronje? I think it was, it was over 50, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I lost count. I have no idea how many I did. And you, got, you got such a huge amount of praise for putting away, putting over the, the teacher um, viewpoint. Did you find that the angle the journalists were taking in, in the mainstream media, in, in, in the nationals, in, in the television was, was quite anti-teacher? I mean, had they swallowed the pill that this was teachers sitting at home and not wanting to go in? Or, or was it quite neutral? Because I guess for a lot of the teachers, it felt like a period of time that they were being attacked. I think it really varied. So for some of the time, it was this like, do you think teachers, you know, are scared about going in? Do you think they're really worried about it? Like, they're really excited to be going back and they, they really want to be back in their classes, but they want to be in an environment that is as safe as possible. And it's feeling as if the schools are making uh, and the school leaders are be able, will be able to afford to make the changes that, that need to be done in order to make the classroom safe. And we know from talking to schools that still isn't the case. They haven't changed the funding. They haven't been able to pay for the extra changes or the smaller classes or whatever they needed to do to, in order to make their classroom safe just hasn't, hasn't happened. And when people moan about teachers that are reluctant to go back to work it's not about going back to work it's about going into a working environment where you're almost certainly um being put at risk and i think um what 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 the praise for your interview appearances showed is that teachers did feel like they didn't have a voice in that and that's mm -hmm. an issue john picks up on is that how much correspondence was there with head teachers outside what what one head teacher calls the inner circle how how much uh how much how many conversations happened with a head teacher in in a city Birmingham with a you know a school of three thousand kids? It didn't seem to be a lot. And even things about the exam guidance, where it was say where it was giving advice like um, you'll you'll need to have a, a, the mock the last minute mock <laughs> where you know we're going to definitely just use these these algorithm grades. We're going to use the the grades and statistical model. Oh, hang on a second. Unless you you've done a, a valid mock. And then you can use your mock grade. There was obviously no consultation with teachers at that point. The idea that that was a well thought through idea is hysterical because any two head teachers will tell you, we did our mocks this way, we did our mocks that way, half our kids didn't even get to do mocks. You can't, that's not, that's a non-starter. And it was a non-starter. We didn't go with that idea because it didn't work. And if they had only just spoken to teachers and schools in the first place, we wouldn't have had to have all these ridiculous U-turns and last minute changes because you could have got a decent plan from the start. And I think um, it's well worth looking at John's feature actually for the, how we, how we rebuild trust from here and how we rebuild sort of the, the perception of education. And the second part of the feature looks at that and looks at, you know, talks to several people in, in the field. And one of the big things that comes out of that is, is collaboration and consultation whether we get that or not is, is, is another matter. So um, make sure you have a read of that feature. It's, it's a huge set piece and it re really does take stock of what happened in the last six months and tries to find a way of how we can move on. Um, 
adding as well on that feature that, that John talks to some really high profile people, doesn't he? He talks yeah. to Ed Balls and, you know, former education minister and various things like that, um, or shadow education minister. And, um, you know, so he's, he really gets to some people who do some really good practical things of what they should have done. It's not just a sort of, uh, you know, run a list of everything that went wrong. There's some actual really good insight to how it could have been better and, and things like that. So I, again, I think it's really practical as well as being very informative and sort of a good summation of what happened. And yeah. A really lovely quote that I think is worth sharing at this point from Rosalind Seal, who's a professor in human resource at uh, Glasgow University, the business school. She says, trust is a glue that binds people together and that distrust is turning a page. It means people start looking in a very different way at your intentions and believe your intentions are not benign. I love that. That's, that really encapsulates the problem we have now got going forward. When we're talking about, oh, we're going to use computer assessments in 2021. We're going to change the GCSEs. We're going to make these alterations. That trust, I feel, really has gone with teachers and, um, and the government because I don't feel we have that same belief that they'll look after the students, they'll have our best interests at heart, they'll make sure this is all, all ready in times that nobody's disadvantaged because of what happened in the summer. Yeah, I mean, we learn from experience and we've done quite a few features in the past about how it's very difficult to change perception. Once you've lost that trust, regaining it is incredibly difficult. And while we acknowledge that, the, the the coronavirus epidemic had a pandemic sorry had had you know it was very difficult to judge and you know no one's saying it was an easy job for government but there are learning points that we we should take forward hopefully um well let's move to the um second feature which is a little lighter it's um by Raina barker and it looks at whether being a popular teacher is is important for learning and you know the amount of features I've had pitched to me where it says, you know, we have to tell NQTs it's not about popularity. You know, you don't have to be liked to be a good teacher. Don't smile. Don't, don't do fun things. It's not important. Whereas Irena's feature says, well, actually being liked and separating that from pedagogy, but being liked is really important. I mean, I don't know, maybe we could say, you know, who was your favorite teacher at school, Dan? And, and why was that person your favorite teacher? Yeah, well, reading the, reading the article it immediately made me think of well, who did I like as a teacher? And actually, it all correlated to the teachers I think were the best teachers and that, I, that inspired me the most, which is my history teacher and my English teachers, who I went on to study English history and then became a journalist. And I don't think it's a surprise that they were the ones I liked and I had a rapport with and I could have a chat to. And they sort of, I don't know, they just, just had that something extra and they were just nice people. And I think that's something in life in general, I think too much. I mean, I do appreciate that teachers aren't there to be liked. They are there to teach. I think that's a fundamental. But I think in life in general, there's far too much weight thrown behind the kind of the idea that not being liked is a good thing. And, and like, you know, in business, it's always the kind of, oh, the ruthless, he, he walks over anyone to get a, get a deal. And that's sort of become in, in society now is like a good thing, you know, like the Alan Sugar types. That's who we should aspire to. Whereas actually, I think being, you can be very good at your job and, and sort of strict or firm or, you know, you get stuff done you can be liked as well and be nice and, and ask someone how their day's going. And I think, you know, that's what I liked about the articles. It made, it made me think like, yeah, what, from my experience, the teachers I liked were my best favorite teachers. Mm. And Gordon, I mean, the, the thing that I, the sen- tell me if I'm wrong, cause I don't want to put te- words in teachers mouth, but the, the sense I get from a lot of teachers is that there's a, they conflate um, popularity or being liked with, being lax i mean in the in the feature there's this there's this view of this teacher from an early 90s comedy that i hadn't actually seen but you know the teacher that smokes with the kids doesn't make them do any work 
swears at the line manager and, you know, it's this rebel and you know, I'm one of you and that, that creates likability. And there's this perception that to be like the two are the same, but is that perception true? And that's not necessarily the case. Is it? You don't have to be that teacher to be popular. No, I think kids really catch on quickly when, when you want them to like you. Mm. They hate that. That's, that's the worst thing you could do. And it's really, and if you, that sort of um, misguided, oh, I'm going to be really nice to the kids. I'm going to bring in sweets. I'm going to do this. And it is a mistake that some teachers find they make in the, at the start of their career. And you can, you can see it sometimes when someone's sort of going down, down that road and you think, oh, that's not going to work. The kids aren't, they're not stupid. They're not going to like you because you brought in chocolate buttons. And they get that sort of sneery, um, ugh, Miss So and So. She, you know, she thinks that we're all her mates, but you know, we just do that so that we can chat about the weekend. Like all oh, that, that classic. Ask them a question about, oh, what do you do this weekend, Miss? If you know you've got a, t- a chatty teacher, and they'll go on and let the class go off topic and talk. But like you say, teachers that you really do genuinely like, you do get a lot out. That you get, you learn a lot from. You tend to like because they like you. Do you know what I mean? Like you're and you're interested in them in as as a person and as a learner, but not because you're begging popularity. There's an interesting point in the feature where it says, actually, the most one of the most important factors in being liked is is that even if you hate a student, and you know, let's not pretend that doesn't happen, um, is you they you make them think you like them because if they think you like them, that's going to be the biggest impact on whether they like you back. Um, and I think if I look, look, think back into the teachers that I liked, I think what tends to happen on Twitter particularly and on other social media is you get two extremes, you know, mm-hmm. you got to, they love you because you're a great teacher or, or they love you because, you know, you're nice to them. Actually, there's a midpoint there where lots of teachers, I think that I really, really, really enjoyed being in their class. I'll name them in case they're still out there. Mr. Bailey, uh, Miss Langford, if you're out there, you know, my email address is freely available. Get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Um, those guys were just had a really nice mix of personable they had really good personable skills they 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 made sure we learned stuff but they also understood us as individuals and you know there was a balance there and i, I you don't get the balance in a lot of the social media discussions i'm hoping you get the balance in schools yeah i i think it's a lot easier to talk when you're on on twitter and it's all about um, very short bursts of trying to explain something and you're thinking about how other people might read it and take it. It's different when you're talking actually in person, isn't it? I'd hope I was so. thinking about this and again, to your point there about, you know, what it is, what is it to be liked? And this idea that liked immediately means popularity and like being one, being mates with the kids. And obviously that's not what we mean. And I was trying to think of an example and like Mr. McDonald was my English teacher and we, we did sort of, um, McDonald. Yeah, and we, he, t- he taught us Philip Larkin, who, you know, came to really appreciate it, you know, and sort of enjoy that. And I always remember that, it's not, and this is an apt time to talk about it in some ways, but I remember the day after the 9-11 attacks, we went into our class, and he spent about the first half of the class talking to us about that, and he found a poem from a, written from the Gulf War about 10 years prior. Um, and we spent most of the lesson going through that, through that. And I really, and it felt like he was treating us like adults because it was like there's something massive has happened in the world and we need to talk about it and to pretend it didn't happen and just crack on with the normal lesson. Now that wasn't him being our mate or him trying to be cool with the kids. He would, but he was treating us like, I know you know what's happened yesterday and we can't pretend, oh, right, back to reading the bell by Iris Murdoch. It was, no, we're going to spend some time and I'm going to engage with you and ask you what you think about this poem and we're going to 
talk about what's happened. And yeah, that, I really liked him for that. And, and, but he probably didn't set out to, to, to be liked by doing that, but it was just a good example of how you can sort of engage a class without, in a way that sort of, you know, hopefully, I imagine most people hopefully would, would sort of understand what he was doing there. Yeah, I think it's, it, that's another key point, I think. And, and, and there's a notion, like you said at the start of this conversation, that being, you know, being the disliked one, oh, they dislike me because I make them work, you know. Mm-hmm. Last day of term, they're doing the worst test I can think of. And, you know, they may dislike me, but in 10 years' time, they're going to say I was their favourite teacher. And I think that's another extreme, right? Yes, kids like to learn, but if, you're, if they dislike you, you're going to struggle. And, you know, I think we've all been in situations um, where we dislike someone and the, the damage that does, and it sort of connects into John's feature, you know, trust, um, a feeling of security, a feeling that that person's looking out for you and doing the best for you. They're all going to go if you don't actually feel that that teacher likes you. Joe, it's funny. It, this, this will surprise you. I wasn't the most well-behaved child at school. And I, um, <laughs> I sometimes uh, got myself into, into trouble with the head teacher. And I, um, I know Mr. Whelan will be listening to this because he now follows me on Twitter and he'll, he'll uh, definitely comment on this one. But he... All stories welcome, Mr. Whelan. <laughs> Um, he was so patient and kind with me and I would rant and complain and sometimes like write quite angry letters about how I objected to various school rules and I thought this was really unfair <laughs> and um, when I was told off in the corridors would quite often shout back and I'm feeling you were a difficult to like student <laughs> he was so patient and lovely and just was always like it, it just totally unflappable just didn't bother him that I was so cross and so like <laughs> no little Maya in the Moomins that was me like I was just like this is just unfair I can't believe I'm making me do this a blazer I've got to wear a blazer this is outrageous and um he and because he persisted and because it just it never bothered him by the end of school I did really like and he taught he took my class for RE because it was so naughty that they had to get the head teacher in to teach us because doing a thing and he was a brilliant teacher and he was so kind I remember the the leavers um letter I got I got a nice mention and that just meant it meant everything to me and I actually did go back eventually and teach at that school which was a bit embarrassing in the class did you still send him horrible letters about his school rules when you were a teacher? <laughs> actually enforced it. it was awful I hated it <laughs> I am I am incandescent with rage about the staff room cup policy Mr <laughs> Elon. And he's just there going, yes, why have I re-employed you? <laughs> why is she here again? <laughs> I guess it's like, I mean, in our, in our place of work, I mean, as journalists, I find the best interviews you get a good rapport with someone. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to have a decent interview with someone if, if, if you don't get a decent rapport. And I think if there's any budding journalists out there reading, the, uh, watch, uh, listening to this rather, I think a rapport, not diving straight into an interview. I've, I've seen some interviews where, you know, ring up and say, hi, you know, it's John from Tez. And someone will say, hi, it's this person. It's like, right, here's my first question. It's like, no, no, I never do that. Like, if, if you need to sort of flatter, the, flatter someone a little bit and you need to create a relationship there because if they don't like you, you're not going to get a lot out of them. And it, it, it goes across all, all sorts mm-hmm. of professions. I mean, I don't know if you can think of some other examples in your in your, in your your um sort of personal life where liking someone has made or them liking you rather has made the situation easier 
Well, I mean, it's not not personal actually, but it's, it, to that point there about journalism, again, something that used to drive me crazy about, um, particularly in the tech sector, is there's a huge, you know, PR cohort that try and pitch you stuff, and it can get quite annoying because they're on the phone to you all the time trying to make you cover their client. But there's no, but there's so much a sort of sort of cult, this idea that oh, let's we can be rude to PRs and we can tell them to swear at them, and you know, some journalists used to have it's a badge of honour that they would make PRs cry, like you know, new to the job and they have to phone a journalist for the first time, and it's like, <laughs> of course they're going to say something stupid or miss. We all do. And I used to say to my team, it's like, they're doing their job. They're not doing, they're not trying to be friends with you. They're just doing their job. But and you never know where that person's going to end up. They might be the junior so-and-so now, but they might be senior at some big company we rely on in two years' time. You know, people move quick. And if, you, if they remember you as the one who was mean to them on the phone, it didn't just say, thanks, but no thanks, and just put the phone, you know, just politely had a quick chat and put the phone down. They'll remember that. And it costs nothing to just be sort of pleasant and be professional. And I think, you know, we had a lot of, good relationships with big companies because we were just a nice team and we just sort of chatted to them. We said, you know, we gave things due consideration and if we didn't want to do it, we just politely said, not for us. We didn't sort of slam the phone down or I never, I've never understood that mindset of like, Oh, I enjoy being mean to people. It's just strange. <laughs> it is. How about you, Gronia? I think like life is just a lot easier if you're, if you smile and you're nice to people, like life is as difficult as you make it sometimes. Mm. And I find that generally I'm quite a smiley person and that, that that's appreciated, especially when you phone up like call centers and stuff. If you're smiling, if you're, I know they can't see you, but you can, if you're like chatty and polite. And if they like, can hear the smile in your voice. Yeah. We've learned, that, then, we've learned today that you, you are a mooming character and that you have a smiley voice. I do have a smiley voice. And I don't know. I just think it, it gets you, it gets you further if you're nice to people and it makes your day nicer. It's just nice to be nice. But I yeah, think that so the thing is that you say that and, that, and it, to some people it sounds sort of trite or whatever, but it's, it's nice. It's fundamental, but the modern world has sort of told us that being nice is a, is a weakness or a failure. And it's not, you can still be tough when you need to be, but predominantly you're nice. Which takes us before we go, I think it'd be interesting, especially as the person who wrote, this is a personal friend of yours, Groyner, to talk about Amy Forrester's piece on makeup in the magazine. <laughs> Oh, yes, let's talk about the makeup. Because I read it, and no, I don't partake in much makeup myself. But what a regime that is that she describes in the magazine this week. She talks about how it's a woman's right to put makeup on her face if she wants makeup on her face. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can still be a feminist. And it's no comment on, on how you view women in society. She feels empowered, and she talks about the need for makeup to be. Um, long-lasting and robust in the school day i had no idea this was an issue it's such an issue so i and uh, for those i know you're listening so you can't appreciate this but i've actually put makeup on today because i need to record something later and um it took me about seven minutes to do my makeup i have sat with amy when she does her makeup and it, we're talking like a, an hour it can take to do the whole thing. So if you can have products or techniques that can cut down that time for doing your makeup, that's a time saver, isn't it? That's a, it's, and it's something that she's really interested in and she knows a lot about. And I think people that are interested in makeup and skincare, because of course it's not just makeup, it's looking after your skin as well. It's, there's a whole knowledge base out there. And I know she likes watching the videos and reading the blogs and trying out new things and that's it's just as a valid interest as somebody who's interested in photography or trains or colouring in books. You get like, many uh, train spotting teachers? Tons, absolutely tons of them. 
Mr. Um, oh, Ian Stock, if he's listening, he's a friend of mine, loves trains, got a little train set. Wow, we need to do a train spotting feature pronto. I mean, Dan, are they, are they, do you partake in makeup, Dan? Uh, no, I, I, I did once um, put some guy liner on when I was dressed up as a pirate for a fancy oh, dress night. So did I. That was a party we were at together, actually. And <laughs> the least said about that night, probably the better. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, no, I, no, otherwise, no, I think I'm very lucky that my morning routine is pretty casual. It's pretty easy, which is, a, which is you know, one of the don't take it for granted. <laughs> and obviously, most girls in secondary schools are banned from makeup or yeah. Oh, yeah. No, not banned. Just so, natural makeup. No okay. fake lashes. There's a school near me that's recently banned um, fake tan, which would be how, how Yeah, how do you police that? Like Baby wipe. Nice. <laughs> um, I, love, I love the back to school uh, stories of students who've been sent home and a recent one about a girl who got sent home for her eyebrows, but they're just her own eyebrows. <laughs> What you mean? They thought she'd drawn eyebrows on, and they were actually her own eyebrows. Because <laughs> of the coronavirus, they can't check with the baby one. <laughs> oh man, this is a whole world of school. I didn't really understand. This, I know these are things that, that you can't train for. That right? That's just. I mean, this is and above and beyond. And is this on ITT spotting uh, illegal makeup? It's just such a big waste of time. I know plenty of teachers just find it. A big faff, and it's just not worth it. So, when you were a teacher, were you baby wiping students' faces while having makeup on your own face? No, I, I flagrantly just ignored the rules. I just didn't. And a lot of girls wear makeup, and a lot of boys wear makeup to cover um, acne, and because they've got spots and things. And I don't really. I I um, taught at a school where the previous head teacher would go to the girls and rub her fingers on the eyelashes to see if mascara came off. And I just think those days of getting so close into a student's personal space, all sorts of reasons should just go. The, the idea of um, making girls lift up their jackets, their shirts, so you can check the waistband of their skirts and make them twirl around. I, I just think this is a practice that needs to be stamped out. And the more more we raise of how ridiculous it is, it still happens. Like it happens. You have time. gone very strident on this issue, Gronia, and and and. So if, if there's a listener who would like to give the other view and write us a, a, an article on why Gronia is wrong, and we could put that as the headline if you like. Um, and I'll edit it and just. <laughs> maybe that should be maybe that should be something we we invite in um okay we've covered a lot of ground we've done trust we've done popularity we've done um makeup um before we go dan do you want to give us a quick plug for your international podcast who have you had on recently that people should tune into um yes the international podcast tez international on apple podcasts or uh, well, on apple and spotify we've had good piece recently with um, head of wellbeing at a big school group about how you look after wellbeing for 45,000 students across the globe, which is wow. challenging, but lots of opportunities. We've got a really good one coming up with Wan Crouch from Globe Educate, and I've got a fascinating one coming up very soon with um, a man called Sadhguru, who's an Indian yogi and mystic who oversees a, a school collective as well in India. So he has, you know, he has an educational part to what he does. And I've got a, he's done us a video and an audio podcast on, on what needs to change about education in the pandemic, and it's very different but very interesting actually and, and quite a, it's only 15 minutes long but when it comes out i think you know once you sort of start listening those 15 minutes fly by and, and um yeah really worth being subscribed so you can check that one when it comes out is one of his 
proposals to ban the checking of makeup in schools? Have we found someone on Gronya's side here? He doesn't cover that, actually. Oh. I don't think I'd ask him either. Like ask me a follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll keep you posted on whether, what Sadhguru's views on, on makeup are and um, make sure you check, the, check out the 18th of September issue of Tears because we've, we've just talked about three of the features. There's loads more in there and um, it's a really good read. So uh, we'll see you next week. 